Hey folks, welcome back to Modern Life Pod. I'm talking today with my friend Morgan from Colorado about It's a Wonderful Life. It's part of our Advent series. Unfortunately, we couldn't release uh, this episode on Advent yesterday because it got deleted on accident. Um, but if you want to talk to us about anything, let us know what you think. Um, want us to talk about a certain subject, you can email us at modernlifepod at gmail.com. Or find us on Instagram, YouTube, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, just type in Modern Life Pod. So on with the show. All right, Morgan, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. <laughs> Should I introduce myself? Please go ahead. Okay. Um, hi, everybody. I'm uh, Morgan. <laughs> From Colorado. From Colorado. Yeah. What do you want to know? Um, okay, tell me the story. Tell me the story of your baking. Oh. <laughs> okay. So. Last time you heard this story, I was starting a bakery, and I did actually. I got licensed. I got a couple customers. I was making that's really cool bagels up the wazoo. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then, in order to make the delicious, delightfully delicious bread that I wanted to make, I needed to build an oven because commercial ovens aren't designed for good bread production. I guess. Can you expand on that? So this is interesting to me. Um, um, most ovens out there are designed to wick away moisture. So if you're baking a cake or some cookies or whatnot, um, it keeps the inside of the oven as dry as possible. But when you're baking bread, you need a certain amount of humidity to actually help the crust form and to get a really nice kind of rustic crack, if you will. Um, and so if you don't have a oven that's specifically designed to hold in moisture, then you're basically fighting against your oven every step of the way. So yeah, I was, the next step was to build an oven, which was, you know, a large investment, time and energy and resources. And I kind of procrastinated. And then... What was this oven going to do? Was it going to have like a spray bottle attached to the inside? Choo-choo, no. And then you... <laughs> Choo-choo. No, no, no. So it was, was going to be a a wood-fired brick oven, um, and it's a direct fire oven, so I would make the fire in the chamber that I would bake and get it up to, you know, 600 degrees and then take the fire out and then put the bread in. And because it's a closed system, like there are no, there's no chimney, there's no vents, there's no nothing, um, the bread creates its own humidity. Um, okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Anyways, so I procrastinated on um, building the oven, and my roommate and I were looking after some mastiffs, and I woke up one morning, and one of the dogs <laughs> had eaten my entire sourdough starter. It licked the bowl clean. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm not a baker anymore, because I don't have a starter. Um... But oh man! But I mean, it was fortunate. Around that time, I was getting back in education. You know, I I got my degree in 
yep. development and human education. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I started kind of leaning into education, early education um, more. And here we are. I now teach second grade and substitute. Oh, God, that sounds horrible. Oh, my God. Are, are they okay? It's so good. It, oh Is my it? God. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I also substitute for first through 12th grade. So I've taught every grade so far this year. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Awesome. Uh, I don't even know how I would keep those kids under control. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, yeah. Not, not all that intuitive, I guess. I don't know. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I've got a couple huggers in the class, which is so funny. You know, walk into class and... <laughs> Two or three kids are just like, Morgan! Like, uh-huh, I'm here now. Well, actually, no, they don't call me Morgan. They say, Mr. McGinnis! Oh, you had one of those schools where they have to still call you by your last name? Yeah. Yeah. Which is all right. It's all right, yeah. yeah. Um. So the only thing that's new with me is I discovered Aurora. She's a singer. Do you know her at all? Um. I don't. I feel like you would really enjoy her. I recently found out about her music. Um, it, she's this Norwegian singer, and it's very kind of like ethereal, but with a punch. Kind of reminds me of like Florence and the Machine and Sia maybe combined. Uh-huh. Um, and I've been listening. She has like two albums out that I completely miss. So this came out in like 2016, I think. So it's nothing new, but um, I've been really enjoying it and. Yeah, really loving her music. So that's my that's what's new with me. That's awesome. Um, so is it Aurora? Are you ready? Is it Aurora yeah. as in Aurora Borealis? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well done. I like a good pun. Are you ready to talk about the movie? The movie. Yeah. That I keep calling Life is Wonderful or Life is Beautiful <laughs> that I keep not knowing what movie we're talking about. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. It's so funny because this is such a classic and I've this was my first time seeing it. Well, and I feel like it's one of those people watch it every year, you know. Yeah. This is this is actually only my second time seeing it. And Really? Yeah, it was always one of those movies, you know, you'd, you used to go to Blockbuster and rent movies, and you spend the like an hour going through the entire store, and you see these movies every single time you go. And I feel like this is one of those ones. Of, like I've seen the cover, and I've known about it, but I just never watched it. You know. Right. <clears throat> and then I saw it once, and I was like, "Oh, that's that's nice. That's good." And watching it, <laughs> watching it again, I was like, "Yeah, actually, this is a really good movie." <laughs> watch it before. <laughs> I accidentally started watching the um, colorized version and I had to turn it off because I didn't enjoy that at all. What? I just went back to the black and white one. What? I thought it looked weird. The colorized the version was awesome. And didn't it come out first? The release date? No, the, Hold on. the black and white one. This came out in 46, this movie. So. Oh, yeah. Colorized is 47. Well, I watched it colorized and I enjoyed it. Immensely. But you probably um you watched the there's like a redone colorized one that looks a lot more realistic. Oh. That's 
probably the one that you watched. Probably. Um, so this movie starts out. I find this hilarious. It's this like conversation between the angels, right? Yeah. Talking among the stars. Um, and these two angels are just like you snarking around about Clarence, right? And they're they're like, Oh, this angel, he doesn't have his wings, he's not the brightest. <laughs> um they have this whole conversation then about him getting his wings. And then the other dude goes, makes some comment about him. And he goes, oh, I forgot you hadn't gotten your wings yet. And I was like, who's the dumb one now? <laughs> like, he just had a whole conversation about this. He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I, okay. So what was with um, Tom Sawyer? I don't know. I recently, it's, this is so funny because I am rereading Huckleberry Finn right now uh-huh. and I don't make a lot of time to reread books, but I felt like this was kind of important. And I reread Tom Sawyer two years ago, a year ago. And as I was rereading it, I was immediately transported back to like me being a little kid and pretending to be Tom Sawyer and trying to make my friends like, signed blood packs oh, and they're like that's not sanitary which they were right it's not <laughs> <laughs> and i'm just like taking for treasure in like random spots throughout town yeah and is that is that supposed to suggest that there's something like juvenile about him liking tom sawyer i don't know it's a pretty like all-around classic it's not like just kids read it yeah. but i don't know yeah. what yeah, what do you think? Well, and I suppose for those who haven't seen this movie for a while, um, Clarence, he he specifically mentions Tom Sawyer like, oh, I have to I have to bring Tom Sawyer, or I'm like in the middle of this book, and then later in the film, it's always with him. I mean, I mean, it's it's the book that he always has <clears throat> in every shot. Clarence is holding this book, right? And it it kind of it becomes. Um, a nice little homage at the very end, but but I think there is some sort of significance as far as like just um, yeah, letting us know that that Clarence is a very kind of childish character, I guess. Um, or is it supposed to say that he's like mischievous? Because Tom Sawyer is just a brat, oh, yeah, you know. I yeah. mean, we love him, but <laughs> um, maybe. Oh. And I mean, in in the scene where Clarence pops up about halfway through the film, um, he mentions like, he mentions like, Oh, I'm, I'm almost done with Tom Sawyer. Have you read Mark Twain's new book? And so it might, it might just be that that's like, they're trying to let us know when Clarence was alive. Oh yeah. But also that, that might be true. We don't need to know that. Like as an audience, we don't care when Clarence was alive. That's you're so right about that. But then also the like nightgown type thing he puts on where he was like, my wife sewed this for me. That didn't look like late 1800s to me. That looked like a costuming from way earlier. So yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, but we might be getting ahead of ourselves. Anyways, yeah, the the first scene when they're like, you know, bad mouthing Clarence. <laughs> Um, yeah, I didn't know it was going to be so um, religious, I guess. Hmm. You know, with the angels and all that. Um, and there is an angel in the short story. The short story is called The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it plays and it does take place around Christmas, but the overall message of the short story, um, according to the author, was supposed to be applicable to whatever religion you were from. You know, it was, it was about, it wasn't about the Christianity, it was about, you know, the importance of one person. Well, and I suppose thinking about the perspective of this time period, you know, it was, um, was it 46? Yeah. Um, a, a director who wanted to make a heartfelt film that would touch everybody. Of course, it's through the lens of Christianity because that's what everybody is, is thinking. Right. right? I, I think, <laughs> you know, culturally, we haven't really shifted away from, you know, Christianity as the default. So I don't know. I don't know if it yeah. was really pushing an agenda. It was, I think it was more just like a sign of when the film was, was made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think you're right about that. Absolutely. And also seeing as this is made in 46, I want, I know this wasn't like a huge box office success when it came out, mm -hmm. but I do wonder, you know, when you're coming back from world war two, do you want to see more stories about, you know, the good old days and small towns and people living there. And, and, you know, do you wonder like, oh, is, would life be different if my son had died or, you know, yeah. things like that. That's it kind of, it kind of fits in with where they are historically. Yeah. I feel. Yeah. Cause everyone's coming back and I, I suppose there is, there might be kind of a fork in the road where the people who never left, the people who, you know, stuck around in the States and, and helped the war effort from here probably had the mentality mm -hmm. of like, oh, the war is over and now we can go back to how life was. You know, and all the guys that are yeah. coming back from the war are like, I'm sorry, the world's never going to be the same. Like for me personally and just kind of globally, there is no return. So right. that, would, that would be an interesting thing to to come back from the war and then see this film that's pretty clearly like, oh, that's over. We can go back to the way things used to be like you know old town romance or yeah small town romances and and yeah that's interesting what else did i have oh i really love the line where it's violet and mary and their little kids in the in the store and mary goes you like every boy and violet says what's wrong with that i just thought that was so cute <laughs> thought that was oh uh, yeah yeah and just like how how I feel like the childhood scenes were um, struck me. And I mean, even with the dark undertone of, you know, the drug has just lost his son. And there's a, there's a moment there where I'm like, is he trying to commit suicide? Like, is this what's happening right now? Um, oh, yeah, I didn't know what was happening there either. Yeah, I was like, are you going to die? Like, what's... But no, and, and just like... There's that dark undertone, but yeah, there's, you know, the the interaction with the lighter that happens a couple of times. Like, I want a million dollars. Could click hot diggity. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, there's no purpose of that except like, this is Gillick <laughs> childhood life right now. Yeah. Even though he is a child and he's working, even though he's like 10 years old or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, um, he's working and in the very same scene, like, he gets hit so hard his ear starts to bleed that was 
really shocking to right? me. It was like, wow, they did not need to do that. Like, oh, that was really troubling. And then I looked it up, and apparently that actor was drunk on set, oh, no. and that kid's ears were actually bleeding. Holy like, he was shit. actually hitting him, according to what that child actor said. But that's just that's just like I'm so glad we've come so far in terms um, of like yeah. the rights of children. That's intense. So, I did not know that. <laughs> because for this movie, that scene in itself, even if it wasn't like a real thing, I was like, whoa, that that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit much. Yeah, seriously. Um. Oh, and then also, I think the next scene is when he's older and he's walking through the streets and he's talking to the police officer and the cab driver uh-huh. and then Violet walks by. Well, yeah, she's wearing that like pink dress and then every single like male extra just stops and looks at her. Yeah, but the uh, the dress she wears, it stops around the, um, around the thigh. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <sighs> The time period they're in, that dress is not appropriate. Like, that dress would be just crazy scandalous. Uh, I feel like they kept not picking the right cut. Because this is pre-World War II, and dresses and things don't stop, or don't stop being shorter until World War II, kind of. Yeah. So it it was just a little, like, a little strange what she was wearing. It was like, oh, whoa, she is wearing... That would be really risque. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's like... You know, this is in the 40s, and they're talking about the 20s. And that that's only right, a 20-year yeah. difference. Like, they could have gone in their closets or, you know, looked at an old magazine. Like, okay, this is what this needs to look like. <laughs> you know, when, when right. we try and do things like, oh, we're going to make a film about the Roman Empire. Like, there's a little bit of license there. But... Right. Um, so, I mean, maybe the dress was either a conscious choice or they're pulling from you know what they i don't know because yeah i mean the time the time frame is so close that that had to have been a conscious decision right i don't know it's just well and i've changed a lot of the notes i have are are small pieces that that again i was like okay well that's got to like the framing of this shot or or what you chose to put on this set, it's got to be conscious. And and I think there's um, there's more to it that I'm that I'm seeing specifically. Okay, so the raven that's mm. in the building in loan, or I suppose it's a yeah. Sprout. What was the significance? Yeah, of I was that? like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> and at at first, I was like, maybe that's maybe that's a pull through from the story that they just felt they didn't have to explain because there's this short story that goes into it. Oh, no, no, no. That's The short story is super short. It just starts with him on the bridge and then there's an angel oh. and then he gives him this bag of like cleaning brushes. He's like, oh, well, if you go around checking at people's doors, you might want to have this with you so he can pretend to be like a traveling salesman oh. because no one remembers him. And then there's the tree is in the book, like that there's a mark on the tree. And then the bank, if he wasn't there, another guy got the job who then made off with all the bank's money and ruined like the economy in the town. And then that person's brother ends up 
uh, marrying Mary. And when he goes over to her house, he comes home and is it's very clear that it's like an abusive relationship, oh, you know, between Mary and the other yeah. guy. So those are the there's really not that much that happens in, okay. in the short story. The, the movie has a lot more time to expand on it. But I thought that maybe um, once you see the uncle's home and it's filled with all these animals, I thought that maybe that was the thing that we were supposed to pay attention to. Like he only relates, he's so scatterbrained, he relates better to animals. And that's why his house is filled with like all these ravens and foxes. And well, yeah, but to, to have, I mean, we see that crow or raven in the building alone like five or six times before we ever see his uncle's house yeah yeah and the uncle's house is like a one second yeah scene. with a squirrel <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and there's like there there are little pieces like that that i that i don't i feel like there's more to read into that i don't get like yeah, what's the significance of it? I, I yeah, I feel you on that one. Yeah, and then there are little pieces that are so intentional, it's it's remarkable. So um, the scene where um, George has lost his the eight thousand dollars, and he goes to Mister Potter's office, and it's like Mister Potter, you know, I'll do anything, just loan me this money. Um, there's a bust of napoleon bonaparte that's in between george and mr potter that's looking right down at george really i did not even <laughs> see that so... how did you know it was napoleon oh my it's... god Morgan. <laughs> it's so like i have conquered you and you are this belittled little man and it's just yeah just the intentionality of of how oh. some of these scenes are set up was so nice and I mean, who Napoleon was a pretty evil guy. My dad always says, like, because my dad hates him. <laughs> it's like nothing, nothing was sacred to him. You know, he goes through all these countries conquering them, but really conquering what? Because you're just destroying everything as yeah. you're going. Well, you know, and such a cycle. I mean, that fits because that's also the scene where Mr. Potter is basically like, you're you're worth more dead and alive, and then calls the cops yeah. on George, like. Yeah. yeah, basically pushes him to to the bridge, but yeah. Which that is different from the short story because, um, in the short story the guy's just really depressed. Um, but there's not this uh, other storyline of oh the insurance money and all that. Well, and I think that that gives George kind of a more. It's more in, in line with the character that they created in the movie. Yeah. You know, he would he would I do anything so mm -hmm. for anyone else, including taking his own life, if that means that, you know, his uncle is saved from jail or his wife has... But that scene before he goes over there at his house, it it's so violent, the way he, like, treats his wife and kids and he's throwing stuff around. And then he comes back at the end and everything's fine and everyone's happy and where were you honey and i'm like don't you need to talk about this like <laughs> it's just a lot like it's kind of scary to watch but then he comes back and everyone's like daddy <laughs> because there's a moment in there that i find so powerful and it's probably one of my favorite acted moments in the whole movie where he's holding on to his child he's sitting in the chair and he just starts mm -hmm. crying and he's just hugging his child to him um 
but then they kind of ruin it all by him just going off. Yeah. <laughs> well, and even the expressions of affection are a bit violent. You know, so the 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 first scene with him and well not the first scene, but the scene where him and Mary are like decide that they're going to be together. Um they're in And he like shakes her. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, and even just like you know, when they're when they're on the phone with Sam and then eventually they're like, Okay, we don't care about this conversation with Sam anymore, we're just gonna, you know, make out. Even that is like, wow, that is really forceful. And, you know, in, in the scene with his kid, after he cries, he like basically smothers this child into his chest and is just like, that that does not look comfortable. <laughs> right? Yeah. I I feel like if this movie was made today, there would definitely be more room to make some commentary on, you know, mental health, because I feel like this is a movie about mental yeah. health and then you know also these kind of family relationships because again that movie when they're on the phone it's such a sweet kind of tense but tender moment of their faces together yeah. by the phone but then again they ruin it by him just like grabbing her and shaking her brain right out. i was like as i was writing notes for this i was like oh look that's a really interesting you know you actually don't device well, yeah you don't see a lot of subtlety around um around affection in these older films yeah and then that subtlety is totally yeah. just destroyed by the shaking kind thrown of like, out the window yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so i had the high school graduation scene <laughs> yeah uh, the charleston dance is a lot of fun and it's also it, it it's tough making a movie about somebody's whole life because now you just have these like people and they're 35 years old and they're graduating from <laughs> high school and, like everybody in the room is like right <laughs> super old yeah and then when the like mean guy who wants to end up with Mary he <laughs> he has like the key but it's like this very specific series of coincidences he's like. There's a swimming pool underneath the gym, and there's a trap door, and Jimmy Stewart's right above it, and I have the key for the secret button or whatever. Yeah, and the button is right behind you, and I have the key. Like, okay. (laughs) It's just a lot. This is actually a real high school. It's Beverly High, and they have this legit pool that opens up inside a gym. I don't know why you would want that or how that works. how it fills up with the, the water. Um, um, one of the parents actually, uh, no, it wasn't a parent. It was a judge of of that Charleston competition. At the beginning of that scene, there's this very small kind of throwaway line of like, oh, thanks, George, for giving us the idea of making this pool underneath this floor. It saved us a building. And then, you know, the scene starts. And it's like, oh, okay, so apparently they almost have to say that to make it in any way well and also like thinking about the time period and how much money that that pool would have like that building there's no way that that town would have a swimming pool underneath it makes absolutely no sense sense. Um, but i i feel like when 
they when people were going around trying to find sets for the individual scenes, somebody stumbled across this high school and was like, oh my god, this swimming pool is so cool, we have to make a scene with this pool. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay fine we'll figure that out um yeah because that i mean yeah the hazing could have gone in so many different directions i mean they use it nicely in the next scene where they're all wet and in different and in clothing and or different clothing yeah and, you know mary's in that bathrobe yeah i love that when he steps on the string and she's like my train please <laughs> like she's pretending to be like a right I love yeah. that. Uh, but her being, if that was a real bush and you'd be naked in there, you she would just be like slashed to ribbons by a million <laughs> twigs and right bleed well, out of that bush. Yeah. Also, I think that was one of the pieces that didn't really fit with his character because he was like, "Wait a second, let me bargain with you," and basically like, "I want you to come out of this bush naked before I give you your your robe back." Like, Sorry, dude. All every characteristic that we've set up so far, that is not one of them, and also that is not revisited. Yeah, like there's not this kind of yeah. mischievous streak. Um, he's no Tom Sawyer. <laughs> is what you're saying? <laughs> it is true. He is no Tom Sawyer. I just the whole you know, and then his dad has a heart attack, right, yeah. or a stroke, and he's kind of taking over. And each time he, there's kind of like this calling for him to take charge and abandon all his dreams. I find that very, it's almost like difficult to watch, you know, especially as you're getting older and some of your own dreams maybe didn't pan out. And it's just tough to give that up or not have the finances or, you know, not be able to travel the world and do all the things he says. Like, I really, I really identify with that. Yeah. And I think there's a legitimacy to a depression, you know, resulting from from that feeling of kind of feeling like you've missed out or and the movie does explore that in a way. I mean, they can't really use all these medical terms and you know, it's the 40s, so they're not they're going to say like, "Oh, he has the blues" or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but, but I mean, you know, know, this guy's obviously crushed and crushed a little bit more every yeah. single time he has to make one of those decisions right yeah. i mean it's just at the end of the film it is a beautiful conclusion but some part of me is like well what is preventing him from you know he's still going to have that longing that yearning to go travel and explore and you can't really do that when you have four kids you know it's just well and I think part of it was you know at the very at the at the end I mean those dreams are given up I think a big part of that scene is Uh, like okay well I wanted this adventure of a life and I guess this is what I have you know which I mean isn't realistic the next scene of that film is him trying to use some of that extra money to go to Greece or something. Yeah, they have like way more than eight thousand oh, yeah. dollars. Wouldn't some people be like, "I'm taking, I'm taking my money back. This is my life savings. Like, I'm taking. My- you have enough money, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, they they will live in a nice house after that after that scene. But but no, I think I think you're definitely correct. Like, there's 
it's so relatable, especially these days where, you know, if you're still doing the dream of, of going to school and getting a house and doing all that, like it's, when you go to school, then, you know, you come out with so much debt and you are kind of circumscribed mm-hmm. into things and, and areas of life that you just, you know, didn't necessarily want to choose. And that's, that's George Bailey, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't want, he didn't actually want his life. He didn't want kids. He didn't want to be at the building alone, but he was kind of pushed, not pushed into it, but I don't know. I, th- I think it speaks a lot to the mentality that was kind of rampant during that day where it's like, do the good thing and it's going to be hard and you're not going to want to do it, but it'll, it'll be its own reward. And also there's no one else to do it. I mean, nowadays facing problems of overpopulation, there's a million other people who take <laughs> that bank job, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're talking before, before the boomers population kind of ties into that, I guess. I kind of wanted to talk about the presence of black people in this movie. Cause there's the like bag carrier when they pick up the brother and wife and he's just smiling. He's so happy. And then there's one black person at the very end of the movie who gives um, them some money. And she's also just ecstatic, which makes sense in that scene. But then there's also the housekeeper who's like, these are all my savings. I love you so much. And I'm like, it's it's just interesting. You know, these are the things black people are allowed to play in movies yeah. at that time. It's just, it's a very accurate, like, documentation of... Well, and there's there's actually one more black character in the very background. Um, When Clarence and George go to Nick's that was Martini's, um, you know, there's a black guy at the piano. And that's that's pretty much it, you know. It's so funny. They still they they still do that today. If whenever like a period drama enters like the Roaring Twenties or whatever, oh, we can now have like black people as background actors. You know, it's almost like a prop they put in. Like, oh, there's somebody playing jazz yeah. and ragtime, and I, I still see that all the time in like movies today <laughs> or TV shows. But it's, I mean, it's the 40s. Yeah. People are I mean, not yeah. thinking yeah. about yeah. that yeah. in any way. It's just fascinating to see what emotion emotional states um they're allowed to occupy you know they're always they're just so happy to help you out even the housekeeper who they don't always treat her like perfectly but she's like oh i'm just you know i'm just the snarky yep, housekeeper always got a smile on her <laughs> face so fun, so. yeah yeah it's just it's just interesting oh when they give out the money at the bank when they're about to go on their honeymoon and then there's the uh-huh. run on the bank and they start giving out their own money to all these people. Um, I cried at that yeah. scene. <laughs> Just like, it was a really, I don't know, it was a really good scene. And because Mary is kind of stopping him from going in there, like, come on, dude, like, we have this one vacation we can go on in right. our lifetime. But then to see her step in and be like, I've got money, who wants money? I think in that scene, you really truly realize why these two people are together you know because they both have that very generous kind yeah yeah definitely i mean 
yeah, she was trying to stop him, and then and then she's the one who says, you know, here's this money. Yeah. The depiction of, like, war and soldiers in World War II, we had talked about this on a previous podcast. My brother had mentioned how during World War I and II, you really only saw the footage of that war that they yeah. wanted you to see. You know, there's not camera people out there who even <laughs> has a camera. Um, and again, in this one, it's, you know, it's very heroic. It's very like, oh, people are just doing their job and they're flying around airplanes, saving the world. And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting what, how, how far we've come with like on war and conflict right. journalism. Well, and also for the better, you know, like we touched on earlier, when this was coming out, people who are coming back from that same conflict are watching this film. And what does that say to them? They're like, here's this this literal hell that you've just been through, and here's what we think you went through. Like, here's our depiction of that. Right. Like, that must yeah. have been intense for them. Like, <laughs> no, that I'm sorry, that is not what happened. I probably if if I was if I was one of those guys that had come back and you know Saturday night gonna see this new film that came out and yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You also can't really show much back in those days, um, based on That's censorship I mean, and such. Yeah. You know, this isn't it's not a forum you can use in that day to explore all these yeah. issues. Um, I also really appreciate how this movie deals with, or how it includes physical disability, because I did not know that Jimmy Stewart's character uh -huh. was half deaf before watching the film. So I don't know. It's I I don't know if they just put that in there so he wouldn't go off to war and like do some sort of traveling. But yeah, I, and know. I think that the big use of that is something to keep him from going to the war. And they they used it kind of, I don't know, they, they were playful with it. You know, that scene in his youth where Mary is like, I'm going to love you forever, forever in the ear that he couldn't hear. And yeah. there were some kind of playful uses of that. I mean, you don't see that often in movies these yeah. days, so... Um. Oh, that scene when he's at, at Nick's, I find this hilarious because all of, if Mr. Martini's not there, Nick just turns into like a sociopath or like, what was the, what was the thing there? He's like throwing around slurs. He's like, you pixies get out of here. He's like, this is a tough and rough yeah, bar. That's... Like, Damn, Nick, like what happened? I think they're, they're overplaying the effect of, of positive role models at that point like oh this one guy isn't isn't in your life and now you're gonna turn into like yeah, yeah. oh yeah that's a little subdued more subdued in the in the written story than it is okay. in, the, in the movie where they do you're right they yeah. play it up but and also like when he's uh when george bailey's running through what's now pottersville and he sees like you know like bars and saloons and 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 dance halls and um that reminded me of downtown olympia washington <laughs> i was like oh i know that place <laughs> olympia is is a small city that is that is trying to hold on to this like small town charm if you will uh, and these mm. yeah and just like you know bars are popping up everywhere and smoke houses and and it, it was just interesting to go like, oh, yeah, you know, this is this was their fear 
back in the day is like, oh, if we if we don't do the right thing, you know, all these negative influences are gonna are gonna take over. Um, and then to actually live in a city like that is like, okay, well, you know, on on the surface, yeah, there are a bunch of dive bars here, but also like there's there's still this kind of small town charm that you just can't get away from. Yeah. Why was um why was Violet arrested? Oh, Do I don't know. know what was happening there because I didn't really. She was coming out was of a dance. I there. think I think they were just trying to. I don't know. I think the the subtext was that she was just like drunk and rowdy, which is weird because I mean you can have an entire bar full of men at at Nick's who are drunk and rowdy, but you know the one female who who's like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna have some fun gets arrested. <laughs> yeah or i don't know if she was working there was she working as a dance yeah. like, I don't well know. i mean she was the the if i remember correctly the building alone was turned into a um like a jitterbug place it wasn't like it wasn't like nudie dancing it was you know pay us a nickel for a song and, and dance with, with whoever's there so it was a social dance um still somewhat risque i guess but um yeah i think she was just you know, the one woman who would speak her speak her mind gets arrested. <laughs> I also love that um, if Jimmy Stewart's not in like Mary's life, she has to wear <laughs> glasses suddenly, and she doesn't have any lipstick. She's a librarian. Like ev- everybody has these horrible things happening to them, and then the most horrible thing happening to Mary is like. Oh, right. She didn't get a man. That, She's like, just the worst. Yeah, that, <laughs> that Mr. Bailey was the only man that could ever be for, for her. You know, I think a large piece of the Sands-Bailey timeline was all of these kind of latent character traits that are in these characters just get to come out because Bailey isn't there to to steer them on the right path. And Mary's latent mm. character traits was to be a librarian. <laughs> like, that's the worst that that character could do <laughs> in her life, which is just like, she hid naked in a hydrangea bush. <laughs> also, when he, Jimmy Stewart runs away, and the police officer's just, like, shooting his gun like a maniac. <laughs> yeah, like, here's this crowded street. street. I'm, like, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna empty an entire round. <laughs> like, okay, guy. <laughs> I'm like, calm down. <laughs> what else did I have? Yeah, again, at the end, I did cry. I was sad. I was moved. But it is also like he comes back and he still doesn't seem balanced to me. He seems maniacally happy. He's like, where are the kids? Where are the kids? And I was, you know, I love everything. Yeah. And I'm worried yeah, about there's... those highs and lows a little bit. Uh-huh. You know. Looking at it from our lens, that is, there's definitely some bipolar stuff going on there. I mean, his low is pretty low. Yeah. And his high, I mean, there's there's one shot, it's near the end. I think it's after he returns to his own timeline, I guess. Um, but he's just, like, maniacally happy. And, and the shot has him looking off um, camera right. And then he pans and looks directly at the audience and then goes to camera left. And it's just like, oh, my God, like, I fear for my safety right now. (laughs) You know, there's this crazy person. Um, Yeah. So I think um, 
that he is still very unbalanced. Um, and so there's definitely not the the kind of discussion of mental health that there probably should have been. You're right. Did you, you feel know? like, did this remind you at all of The Christmas Carol? Because I feel like that scene where he was going to the suburbs that he built and it's just a graveyard, you know, and then it just some it was almost like a reverse Christmas Carol. Yeah, like the ghost of Christmas past. I mean, it it's definitely drawing from like, oh, let me as a spectral body take you on this adventure and kind of and expand your perspective about your impact on other people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely drawn from you know past christmas past present and future but which is something um, that the movie does there is nothing like that in the book because the angel's not really with him as he goes on this journey so i think it's just um you know like a director's choice yeah i mean drawing on familiar tropes yeah yeah it's a smart it's a smart thing to do um i just was hoping that the potter's bank assistant would I thought the end of the movie was going to be like, he shows up with the $8,000 and it's like, oh, I saw my boss like pocket this money and I'm doing the right thing. That's not what happens. I was a little no. disappointed. No, Potter still has eight grand that he, that he's just sitting on. Um, yeah, no, I, I actually, you know, this is my second time watching it, but I, I kind of remember the assistant coming in and giving them the money. I'm like, nope. That I guess that did not happen. <laughs> yeah. Potter is Potter is the epitome of um the unredeemable. <laughs> yeah. Like they didn't even try to redeem his character at all. Um some interesting things I found out about this movie is the sets were already existing in Culver City and Encino, which is their places around here in California. And then they just added um onto that. So all those streets and everything. Um that's why you don't really leave that main street either because it's it's just yeah. this one set um yeah. but it feels pretty expansive like i felt i felt like i knew this town sort of i think um because the the street that his house is on like we return to that street so many times and i think it's for me it was kind of the repetition of like oh i know that place oh i know that place like i've been here before that made it seem like I know this entire town. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, so um, they did... get some wood glue. If your little thing is popping off of your staircase oh every God, time, it's very, very easy fix, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. You know, the knob that comes off at the bottom of the stairs and, you know, George Lasso's the moon, like these little pieces that they just keep on coming back to. Um, I thought it was satisfying from an audience's perspective, like, oh, there's that thing again. But also practically like, yeah, wood glue or a nail. <laughs> or a or, nail. Come on. <laughs> like literally anything. You could put some newspaper and just kind of wedge it in there. Oh, like, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. He just he just doesn't know his own strength. <laughs> also the fake snow they had been using before this movie was like colored cornflakes. So you had to redub the movie later on because it's just crunchy sounds um but then for this one they invented like a chemical snow that was like a new type of snow so a little bit yeah. of movie making trivia here that was like a milestone in 
movie snow making. Was this was this the first blockbuster that used the new snow? Yes, yeah, they made it specifically for this movie. Nice. Well, it was effective. Otherwise, we'd still be having cornflakes. Or no, I think that's a pretty smart idea, though, using cornflakes. <laughs> <Fancy> sound. <laughs> well, yeah, except that you have to redub everything. That's what they had to do for the Lord of the Rings. So I don't know. Really? Yeah, they filmed like a bunch of it near like this um, airplane hangar or something like an airport, oh, and it was just planes going overhead all the time. So they had to like redo in the studio a whole bunch of the lines and scenes for Lord of the Rings. That's funny. I did not know that. Um, but that's basically everything I had on my list. Do you have anything else? Any notes um, about angles and cameras and? I think it was really the crow that was in the B um B and L. I was like, okay, what's that about? And I think that got me, I think that got me looking at like the very small details that seem like conscious choices that I just don't understand. Yeah. And one of them, it's at the very end, it's the last scene. There, you know, the entire town is coming out and giving George all their money, um, and this guy gives George a gold watch, and George instead of putting it on the table hands this watch to the daughter that he's carrying. And for the rest of the scene, this daughter is holding this watch. And it just seems like, A, how hard did they have to work to get that small child to hold the watch for the entire scene? <laughs> like, how many times did they have to reshoot that one scene so she could do that? And, like, why? You know? Like, what's the significance of a watch being held in that... Yeah. And yeah, you know, there's some of those questions where I'd like, I'd like to be a fly in the wall just to hear the director be like, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. She's going to hold a watch and the entire audience is going to know that this means like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. If Frank Capra had a Southern accent, but uh, <laughs> oh, according well, uh, to Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's it. That's all. That's all I got. That is is a wonderful life. So I guess my last question for you is, will you watch this film again? Was this going to become one of the ones that you watch over over and over again? That's a good question. Um, I don't know that it is, but it's Oh, come on, it has to. I mean, it's it's not going to replace the Christmas story. Do you still watch the Christmas story? I love the Christmas story, yeah. I I hate that movie so much. (laughs) Why? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Wait, what do you hate about it? I love this. Go on. Go on. Well, okay. Before before I describe this, let me let me ask you a question. Um, Napoleon Dynamite. Do you enjoy the movie Napoleon I've, Dynamite? I feel like I've seen scenes from it or I was in the room when somebody was watching it. But I don't remember laughing at it or actively wanting to watch it. So I only bring it up because I hate these two movies for exactly the same reason. (laughs) The Christmas Story and Napoleon Dynamite are that type of movie where nothing actually happened. It's just an expose of life at this time. And I'm like, if I want an expose of life, I will just go out and live my life. I don't need... To sit down and watch, you know, this kind of dysfunctional family try and have 
Christmas or like I don't need to watch Napoleon not do anything for two hours right like I don't know that a movie like It's a Wonderful Life is so much more satisfying for me because there's, there's a, a narrative and there's drive and there's narrative and there's a message and there's like meat that I can kind of nibble on while I'm watching the film but I don't know I and I, I have tried granted I have tried to like the Christmas story many times and then I have never gotten there that's no that's a really good point but do you would you not enjoy or have you read because I know you've read North and South have you read Elizabeth Gaskell's Cranford or like not. any of the like Anne of Anne of Wendy Poplar's list like that too was just kind of a picture of what is life and what are they doing but not, there's not really that much of a story I don't know I really enjoy that but now I hadn't yeah. thought about those movies like that Morgan you make me <laughs> you make my brain work um and also maybe hopefully you'll watch this I mean I'm I'm gonna watch this movie again I think it's I think it's really long time. is it it just felt it's, really long it's two hours Oh man, it's, it's a little over two hours. It's basically two movies in one because you know one movie is his life and the other movie is Clarence trying to yeah get him to not commit suicide. I guess I don't yeah. know. The whole family's getting together for Christmas. I'm probably gonna make them watch this movie. <laughs> it's gonna be great. It's a good one. It's a good, good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being on. Of course, it's my pleasure. I'm I'm happy to. Happy to sit down and chat.